Hello everybody and welcome to Kale is Trying. My name is Kale and today I am trying to separate the goodness of the divine with the badness of religion. It is not going to be a surprise to anybody that churches do not uphold the highest values that they claim to live by. When you are an organization with the word Christ in your title, you should be at all times so loving, so active, so understanding, that when we look at what Christ is in the Bible, there should never be a reason that the people that call themselves Christians should be anything less than just the most appealing and amazing people on the planet. But that's not the reality, and we know that. There are a lot of amazing, wonderful people in Christian churches, and there are a lot of really obnoxious people who are out there doing the opposite of the Lord's work. That's what I want to get into today. What do you do with religion that has been so enmeshed with obnoxious, weird, legalistic rule following that it forgets to see the humanity of the people it's supposed to minister to. And we're going to do that by looking at a story in the book of John. But before we get to that, I want to make a quick comment. Because while I'm recording this, it's been pretty recent that the Supreme Court has made a decision that has overturned Roe v. Wade, has changed what was expected in this country for the last 50 years about the right to have an abortion. And there's a lot to be said about this, and I probably will say more when we get to our next series of episodes on counting on Christians in a crisis. But since we're talking about churches hurting people, it also felt important to mention something about it here. The ruling from the Supreme Court is different than the story we're going to look at today, but in a lot of ways there are still some parallels. What this ruling does is it takes a, an issue that people see as moral and it puts it, again, in this legalized framework that if you just follow the law, you have nothing else to think about. You have nothing else to worry about. That somehow just following the law is what makes you right and moral and I guess, appealing to God. And it's important because this episode about when churches hurt is connected to this idea because the overturning of Roe v. Wade would not have happened without a steady, consistent, and aggressive push by American Christians. There's a lot of people out there right now who feel very upset, not just at the Supreme Court, which that's a That's the political side of it, but also upset with religious people who have been pushing so hard to say you shouldn't get an abortion that they rarely have taken the time to address any other reasons or issues that people might seek an abortion to begin with. The United States is a weird place because a lot of its population want to say that it is a Christian nation, and yet they do not vote or enact policies that would resemble something that Christ would do. Instead, they take issues that they disagree with personally, and they push and push and push and push. So we live in a country that says, no, you may not terminate a pregnancy. 
But also, no, we are not going to expand social safety nets. And we are not going to uh, try to find a way to get free universal health care or free pre-K or free child care. All things that are a massive, ridiculously (laughs) expensive endeavor for people with children. So we live in this weird place where we get a lot of different messages coming from churches. And some of those messages the loudest ones, the ones that are changing the way Americans live, those voices are not ones that seem very interested in supporting and helping people. Of course, there are always exceptions. I'm not here to to split every hair and talk about every nuance. Know that I understand that there are a lot of really great, wonderful people who, now that this has happened, are going to renew their energies to be supportive, to be helpful, to create environments for thriving life. And that's great. But as a culture, a Christian American culture, we have spent decades doing everything everything we can to not offer that to people. And that's why this decision is so devastating. As someone who identifies as a Christian, I think that we have done things completely out of order here. If you wanted to outlaw abortions, then you should have enacted years and years and years ago safety net programs to help people thrive and live. But that's not the America we live in. It's very frustrating. Uh, I think there's a lot of stuff that's good about America, and I'm recording this the day after 4th of July, so just like I'm going to be talking about in this episode, there's something good and divine that religion can help us access, and I think there's something good and liberating in American ideals that studying American history and embracing and supporting a country like this can also help us with, but right now, it's kind of a disappointment on both fronts. So, We're going to take a look at John chapter 9 today. John chapter 9 has a story that most of us are familiar with, but uh, just to give a quick recap, Jesus and his disciples are walking, and they come across a man who was born blind, and his disciples say, who messed this one up? Is Is it his fault, or is it his parents' fault? And Jesus tells them, it doesn't work like that. And he scoops up some mud, and he puts it on the blind guy's eyes, tells him to go wash that off, and he does, and he sees, and it's amazing, except for what happens next. So, I'm going to read from verse 14 here in John 9. Now, it was the Sabbath on the day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees who were asking him again how he received sight. And he said to them, he applied mud to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who's a sinner perform such signs? And there was dissension among them. So they said again to the man who was blind, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it about him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. And they questioned them, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he see now? His parents then answered and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he sees now, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. 
He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already reached the decision that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be excommunicated from the synagogue. It was for this reason that his parents said, He's of age, ask him. So for a second time they summoned the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered them, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though... I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? They spoke abusively to him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here's the amazing thing that you do not know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if someone is God-fearing and does God's will, he listens to him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened his eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and yet you are teaching us? So they put him out. We have a story here of somebody whose entire life has been framed around an idea that your life condition was somehow a reflection of your own righteousness. And it's a story of a guy who has a profound life-altering moment. And when he goes before the religious leaders, they do not acknowledge his life. They do not acknowledge his experience. They do not acknowledge his pain or his suffering. And they kick him out. Have you ever been disappointed by your church? Have you ever been disappointed by a group of people who, when you came to them with something that you were really excited about, they quizzed you, interrogated you, didn't believe your experience, and your enthusiasm dwindled and disappeared? Jesus is frequently disappointed by the religious leaders of his day. In Matthew 21, he goes into a temple and drives out the people who are doing business there and says, you are turning a house of prayer into a den of thieves. And in Matthew 23, he gives a scathing rebuke of everything that the religious establishment was doing, saying, you put on a good front, but you're a graveyard on the inside. And it wasn't just Jesus who had a problem with this. We had all the prophets in the Old Testament who frequently came to the religious leaders and said, you are messing up everything. This is not how you're supposed to be doing it. And yet at that time, you had most of the people all believing the same thing, that your life conditions were a reflection of your righteousness. And we know that because when Jesus approaches this blind man, it's his own disciples who say who messed it up. And Jesus provides us with a new idea. He rejects the old idea that your value is somehow based on what you do. Instead, he replaces it with this new idea that says you are valuable because of who you are. You're a person. You're a human being. You have dignity that is built into your being. And it doesn't matter that you're what your parents did, and it doesn't matter what you did. The struggles of life, the highs and the lows, are not a reflection of your goodness in the face of God. 
but it is a reflection of the goodness of Christ that God sees you with. But this idea was so strong that the religious leaders didn't just use it for the man that was blind there. They're using it for Jesus as well. Back in verse 14, we see the religious leaders asking this man who was blind, and they're frustrated because Jesus did his healing on the Sabbath. And they said, Jesus can't be a good person because he's breaking our laws. But it's more than just that because they aren't even fully committed to this idea. When you look back at 14 and 15 and 16, you get this showing up. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who's a sinner perform such signs? And there was dissension among them. What I find among other things very interesting about this story is that when this man shows up and says, I used to be blind and now I'm not. And they said, who did this? And he says, Jesus. And they said, Jesus is breaking our laws. Good people don't break our laws. This is a problem. And it creates a cognitive dissonance in the community, a split in the group that's there because some are saying it can't possibly be true while others are saying, yeah, something's got to be going on. And that puts them in a very difficult position. Because now they have to interrogate themselves. They have to interrogate their beliefs. They have to interrogate the way God works, the way God sees humanity, the way God sees each and every one of us. And that really messed with their heads because they believed fully that what they did is what built their value. But if somebody broke a law about what they were supposed to do because it provided dignity and value to somebody who needed it, if that person represented God, then that kind of puts a little chip into what they were believing before this. But what they do is something that I believe is still a problem today because it's been a problem for centuries. When you have a new idea that's presented to a religious establishment, instead of toiling over what this could possibly mean and investigating and praying and studying, instead, they find a scapegoat to place all of those problems on. And that's what happens to this man. Because they don't know what to do. It's like Jesus is right or Jesus is wrong, but if he's right, but he broke the rules, then what does that mean for us? And who are we now? Ah, my, my brain hurts. Get this guy out of here. And I love the man here because while they're having a crisis, he's just like, you guys seem real interested in him. Do you want to meet him? You can be his disciples too. And they tell him to shut up and get out. So they kick him out of church more or less. This has been going on for centuries. People have questions. People have new experiences and they're bullied for it and they're beaten down for it and they're exiled for it. And is it any wonder why we have so many people leaving the church? And when they leave church, they leave God. Because whether we like it or not, these two are often tied together. Religion can be seen as a lot of different things, as a guidebook for our behavior. But what I want to suggest to everyone today is that religion is a tool that gives us language with which we can explore the greatest mystery of the universe, that thing we call God. For any of you who grew up in a church, everything you know about God is filtered through that lens. That's how we have a language for it. That's why we say father, and that's why we say shepherd. 
That's why we talk about blood and righteousness. That's the language we have. And it's incredibly useful. But then when somebody is wronged, when somebody's hurt, when somebody is rejected and shoved out the door and they say, fine, I don't need this group of people and I don't need this church. All that language, all of those tools used to explore the mystery of everything is disgusting to them now because it's so closely tied to other human beings and not tied to what God actually is. But how do we determine that? How easy is it to split all that up and put everything under its proper category? It's not easy. It's very, very difficult. But here's the important part of what we get here. The religion in Jesus' time was not God, and God was not the religion at the time. And for those of you who are struggling now, those of you who have been hurt today, that's an important thing that you have to get your mind around, that God is bigger than the tools we have to talk about him. God is bigger than what we can figure out. What a church provides or or what a church should be doing is providing you with options, avenues, and language to help you ask big questions and to figure out something in your life. But never mistake the tools for the divine itself. My favorite part of the story happens after this man is dismissed from these religious leaders. So we're going to go back to John chapter 9 and we're going to start reading in verse 34. They answered him. You were born entirely in sins, and yet you are teaching us? So they put him out. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and upon finding him, Jesus said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered by saying, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he's the one who is talking with you. And he said, I believe, Lord, and he worshipped him. This is a story about a guy who meets God unexpectedly. He wasn't searching for God at the beginning of the story, at least not that we know of, but he lived during that time, so he probably felt that his value was tied to what he did, what he was, which was blind, tied to whatever his parents had done, but he wasn't searching for God, at least we aren't told that he is. And then when he's brought into a religious community, it doesn't support him. It doesn't acknowledge him. It doesn't even believe that he actually lived through blindness and regained his sight. And then he meets God again when? After he's been hurt. It's my favorite part of the story. He's been wounded. Anyone in his position in today's society would have walked out and said, this is garbage. It's a bunch of people with a righteous mask, but on the inside, they are skeletons and dead people, and I don't want anything to do with them. And when this person leaves that community, Jesus comes and finds him. I don't know where it is that you find the most holy Things. I don't know where it is when you feel closest to God. But it makes me think when I was growing up, there was a phrase we would often use about being in the outdoors. We would say, nature, it's God's second book. And after hearing that a lot, it started to become super cheesy to me. But there is something real there in that this church religious thing that has been built up over centuries 
works for some people really well. But for others, spending time alone in the quiet space of your own room might work better. Or for some, being in nature works better. The point is, you can find God in all sorts of different places. And so today I want to suggest a few things as I wrap this up. First, I'm sorry if you have been hurt. It's awful. It's miserable. And if you've been hurt, you've probably felt like it was their fault for choosing something about you that you felt was very real and natural and made a lot of sense. And so you're probably holding on to some kind of bitterness and some kind of rage and some kind of disgust. I'd like to suggest that that is not actually about the divine. It's about people. Whether we like it or not, churches don't exist without them. And as much as I love people, we're also just the worst. I would also like to suggest that God dwells around us constantly. So if something's not working for you, I would encourage you to not throw the baby out with the bathwater, as it were. I'd like to suggest that you search and search and search because what what John 9 shows us is that when we do not know where we're supposed to be and when we feel wounded and hurt and the language we have for God has become tainted and damaged, God comes to find us. As I mentioned at the top of this episode, we are living in a strange time where it's really hard to keep looking at certain churches and believe that they might have your best interests at heart. And it's probably worth saying that for you and your specific situation, your church might not have your best interest in heart. It's going to be different for every person in every congregation. What I want to focus on as we we end this is that God and church are not the same. And if the church you're in isn't working for you, if it's not meeting your needs, if it feels toxic, if it feels like it's making you a lesser person, or if it's treating you like a lesser person, God exists outside of that church. Whatever it is that is God exists outside of any human structure and any human organization. The next several episodes are called Counting on Christians in a Crisis, and and they were originally recorded in 2020 in the wake of the George Floyd murder. But I think living in 2022, we have just as many issues and problems. And the one I mentioned at the top of the episode with the overturning of Roe v. Wade is one of them. And I think now is another time we have to look to Christians during this crisis and ask, can we count on you? The story we looked at today from John is about religious leaders that you can't count on. They are more interested in their tradition, they're more interested in their rules, they're more interested in their own ideas of rightness than they are about helping another human being. And so when we start the episodes coming up, 
they are going to be more specific to our modern context. They are going to look at American Christian culture, at least what is mainstream and the stuff that is usually dominating <laughs> what stands for Christianity in America. Thank you for spending time with me today. Thank you for listening to this episode. Um, if you're enjoying what you're hearing so far, share it around. Let other people know. <laughs> we need as many people as possible to look at their religion and say, is this helping people? Is this helping people find dignity? Is it helping people feel valued and loved? And we need more and more of that every day. So thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time for Counting on Christians in a Crisis Part 1. And until then, farewell, good people.